Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ronald J. Schmidt, who is the author of Reading Politics with Machiavelli. This book was published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. This is a fascinating conceptual idea of understanding Machiavelli in our current times and encountering him again as a political theorist and political thinker. But I'm going to let Ron tell us a little bit about that. So now I'd like to introduce Ron Schmidt. Um, and I'm asking you, Ron, to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project. Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I My PhD is from Berkeley. I've been in Maine, though, for almost 20 years now. Uh, and the book really rose out of a, a reading group that I belong to. They're political theorists and philosophers and classicists from U- the University of Southern Maine, where I am, the University of New England, Colby College, and sometimes Bates and Bowden. And uh, over the years, we'd read a number of texts that all seemed to sort of come together for me a couple years ago. I'd, we read uh, Althusser's Machiavelli and Us, and we had read Wendy Brown's Undoing the Demos, the Demos, and then uh, we read Bonnie Honig's book on Antigone. And in the Antigone book, Honig writes about uh, conspiracy, and she asks the question of why we seem to privilege only public open politics and not conspiratorial politics. And I thought, well, Machiavelli wrote a long chapter on conspiracies. Why don't we go go see if that shows us anything? And at that point, I was just thinking about a conference paper. I was working actually on a totally different book project. But I went back and I, I reread Machiavelli's conspiracy chapter. It's from the third volume of the discourses. And it occurred to me that what Machiavelli is doing in his writing, and, and whether these are his his political theory works or his poetry uh, or the legations, the reports that he wrote back to the, the Florentine government when he was working in the Republic, that his style is almost always epistolary. It, it's like It's like he's initiating a conversation. He's in conversation with Livy. He's in conversation with these these classical uh, authorities to whom he turns. And in a similar fashion, he's in conversation with us. And I found writing with him about conspiracy to be surprisingly uh, easy. And, um, Thomas Mann has this line that, that writers are people for whom writing is particularly difficult. And I feel that way a lot. But I just suddenly found myself uh, engaged in thinking about what conspiracy means as I wrote my way through uh, volume three, chapter six of the discourses. And by the time I was done, I thought this, this has the makings for a, a larger project where, where Wendy Brown's book came into this thinking was in undoing the demos. She, she talks about how it's not just democratic institutions that are undermined under neoliberalism, but also the, the democratic imagination our ability to, to think about democracy as an activity that we want to engage in and to imagine ourselves in that place. And that was in my head too, as I was reading through the discourses, the, the preface to the discourses is it's kind of an exhortation, but it's also kind of a rebuke. You know, Machiavelli is writing to these younger Florentine aristocrats who are talking about, Republics. Their their concern is is the history of ancient Rome and and trying to collect the the outward signs of Roman citizenship and life as citizens of a Florentine republic. 
And in the preface to the discourses, Machiavelli says, you know, if if you really want to know what it means to be the citizen of a republic, you have to try to act like the citizen of a republic. If, if you want to know what political autonomy looks like, you have to to imagine it and then try to enact it in your own life. And so it occurred to me that at, at a moment when the democratic imagination, as much as democratic practices are, are shaken, Machiavelli could in a way do for us what Livy and other ancient authorities did for Machiavelli. He, he could become someone into whom we could enter conversation to think about democratic questions, to think about Republican citizenship uh, from a, a fresh perspective. And that was really the genesis of the project. Once I had the paper written and got some feedback uh, at the Western and at APSA, I decided to try to turn it into a book and um, uh, to address certain questions of Republican legitimacy and Republican life that are important to us as they were with, with Machiavelli. Um, and that's what's really fascinating about this book. You've, you've kind of put us in, in an encounter with Machiavelli in a way that we don't often think about it. I think we do it when we read The Prince. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, when I read The Prince with my students, I, I try to sort of have them think about why he's talking about what he's talking about in the way he talks about it, which is also, you know, a lot of what you're doing in the book, but formally sort of saying, let's, let's encounter Machiavelli the way he encountered Livy, um, mm -hmm. I think is, is really fascinating. You also talk about him early in the introduction as an uncanny friend. Yes. Um, and you note that he's also a friend for hard times. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, to some degree, I think goes to the thesis of your book. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by him being a friend for hard times and an uncanny friend? Yes. Machiavelli's style is, is self-consciously anachronistic. And, and by that, I don't mean that he's um, out of date in some way, but that he is he's consciously trying to write outside of his own historical moment, but also without immersing himself completely in the history of the people that he's reading. He's, he's talking to political authorities, not really necessarily philosophical ones, about political actions uh, with an eye towards how studying, say, citizenship under conditions of inequality in the Roman Republic could inform questions of how to act as a free citizen under conditions of economic inequality in Florence under the Medici. And I decided to, to try to encounter him on, on those terms, to try to look at his source material and his writing and our moment, uh, in a sense, together, despite the, the enormous structural and historical differences there. And in doing that, I found him to be a, a, a really agreeable uh, uh, interlocutor. In a way, it's, it's, it's almost like entering into his study, sitting there with, with this figure and engaging in conversation and being able, as he put it in his letter to Vittori, to pose him questions and actually expect answers. And that is the fashion in which he writes. His, his legations can be kind of cryptic. He has a tendency to say, well, a lot of people think when he's trying to offer up his own advice, for example. But the, the legations do offer the perspective of somebody reporting back to allies about the political situation he sees uh, throughout Europe in a way that intends some kind of advice. 
And once I began to read him that way, my, my perspective on, for example, The Prince really changed. In not just the preface to The Prince, where he directly speaks to Lorenzo de' Medici, but in the first few chapters, when he talks about the unique problems of new princes, it suddenly struck me how much he's actually just telling us he's offering us concrete advice about what you do when people don't take your regime for granted, when, when people's habits actually lead them away from being a member of your particular form of political community. That's, that's the challenge for the Medici at that moment. But now, it's, also, it's also the challenge that you're talking about in our current situation. Precisely. <laughs> and, and then looking back at the conspiracies chapter, there's this great moment in that chapter where he, he, he's been talking about how conspiracies are, are terribly important and they're terribly dangerous. And suddenly he's addressing princes. He's like, I'm going to tell you about conspiracies because princes have to be careful about this. And, and a conspiracy can completely undo all the work a prince has done and cost you your regime and, and cost you your life. And it struck me as odd that all of a sudden he's, he's offering advice to princes again in a book that is about Republican citizenship written to, to people who want to be Republican citizens. And in that same paragraph, he, he cites Tacitus. And he says, you know, it's like Tacitus said, it's this wonderful piece of advice that whatever prince you find yourselves born under, you should endure what it is that they ask of you and, and make your peace with it. And I thought that seemed like weird advice from Tacitus. I, it, I must have been 20 times before I thought actually to go back and reread the original <laughs> text. But Tacitus, th that advice comes from a character in Tacitus who's, who's conniving with Nero to steal the, the liberties and the freedom of the people of Rome. And it's, it's a nice little wink at the reader. Machiavelli's a friend for hard times in that he can't always offer his advice um, in a completely upfront fashion. But when it's opaque, when it when he's hiding it, when he's lying to you, there's there's a wink there. There's a, a suggestion that he's helping you not just to read his advice, but to read between the lines of his advice. And that too really changed the way that I approached the prince. And suddenly I found myself in conversation with somebody about how to act like a citizen when anti-republican forces, when structural inequality, when massive shifts in population are challenging the the conditions of your political moment. And suddenly I found myself just really chatting with this person about republics in, in crisis. And that, that transformed it into that kind of a friendly exchange. And I mean, and Machiavelli is famous for the kind of winking yeah. um, throughout, throughout particularly the prince, I think. Um, but you do talk about the fact that he is, he is a very good interlocutor and potentially teacher, I think, um, for our neoliberal times. Can you sort of explain what you mean by, first of all, our neoliberal times and why Machiavelli, as opposed to other political theorists, Western political theorists perhaps, um, might be the best or most useful teacher? Um, I'm not by any means the first person to this to this party. Um, I understand. Uh, uh, <clears throat> John John McCormick, for example, has written very well on how Machiavelli's writings can help us to grapple with structural inequality because it's a problem that he's concerned with, and it's a problem that surrounds us. Um, and I can't really do that better than than McCormick did. I don't think in in for example his book Machiavelli and Democracy, but. 
after reading Undoing the the Demos, that wasn't exactly my question. I was I was a little con- I was concerned less with democratic institutions than I was with the democratic imagination, with with our ability to imagine a, a democratic way of life and to enact that and to see it as something that we that we want. And from that perspective, my problem with neoliberalism um, is is less with its uh, with its sort of behind the scenes efforts by the the machinations of particular figures than it is by the the substitution of political categories with uh, with market categories with a, a way of thinking or approaching topics that I see, for example, in in the way my students talk and in the way my university identifies itself and its mission around questions of the market, you know, around thinking of ourselves as as objects of investment, about thinking about the way that we find worth and value through through a, a market narrative and how that has effectively supplanted different ways of thinking that previously were political. And so when, in Machiavelli, what I, what I can see is a way to, to counter that, to, to reintroduce a political way of thinking about problems uh, that doesn't partake of, of, of neoliberal economics. And, and when you talk about sort of the democratic imagination that Machiavelli is giving a lot of space to, mm-hmm. um, what do you mean by that? I mean, obviously, we're talking about how do we respond to political problems with political responses. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I've sort of been thinking about this with regard to imaginative spaces that are occupied by popular culture um, yeah. and, and sort of giving us answers, you know, to political questions with superheroes, which, yes. you know, sort of truncate the sort of political imagination. So can you explain a little bit about what you mean by this idea of sort of democratic imagination and Machiavelli's hand in that? Sure. I, parenthetically, I'd love to talk to you about superheroes at some point. Sure. Um, yeah, I remember reading the, the, I remember I was reading the Peloponnesian war once during the Clinton impeachment trial. Yes. <laughs> and I was watching this this robust debate on on C-SPAN, um, in which all the categories of debate didn't really partake of politics, except in the pejorative sense of of things as quote unquote just political. And at the same time, I was reading the the debate on what to do about Mytilene, and you've got people who are saying, well, you know, a faction of the people in that city rose up against Athens, so we have to kill all of them. That's that's in our interest. We have to terrify our subjects. And somebody else saying, well. Um, we shouldn't kill everyone because then that'll drive our other subjects to to think that they have no recourse to us. And the entire debate happens around incredibly narrow questions of self-interest in, in just the way that I saw happening in the in the Senate trial in the in the Clinton impeachment. It was as if nobody any longer had recourse to any other narrative outside of a particularly narrow deterministic reading of, of self-interested behavior. And I, I can talk to students about political issues in class or when they come by office hours and they come by for advice on, on what to do after they leave the university and they talk about questions they have with particular texts. And, you know, you, at least I try to find analogies and metaphors to, to help me to think through an issue, and the students will too. And so much of, of our language basically winds up coming down to what are essentially 
economic um, and neoliberal narratives of of reading themselves and their lives as basically entrepreneurial activities. What Machiavelli provides us with, and he was struggling to do this in his own time, is a way to think about politics that isn't the way that immediately comes to mind. When, when Machiavelli is writing about Republican politics under the Medici, he has to find a way to address issues that, that aren't already subsumed by what would seem like the basic obvious logic of, well, the Medici are wealthy and well politically connected and, and the Pope is a Medici. And at this point, we just have to figure out how to, how to live in the face of that kind of monopolization of power and resources. He's trying to think of a way to approach even that situation that isn't bound by the narrow logic of, of the Medici. And so what he does is he turns back to, to Rome. He turns back not just to, to the Rome of Cicero and, and political theory ideas of what it means to be in a republic, but to concrete historical examples that he then tries to read not as a, as a classicist, but as a student of politics in his own time. At, at the tail end of the preface of the, of the dedication to the prince, he gives us this, this painting metaphor. He says, you know, I hope no one takes exception to the idea that I would advise a prince. But it's like how landscape painters, if you want to paint mountains, you got to go into the valley. And if you want to paint the valley, you got to go up into the mountain. And the same is true here. If you really want to understand princes, you have to be part of the, of the people. And to understand the people, you really have to be a prince. And he doesn't say so, but I think it's clear there that he perceives himself as somebody who who can pack up his, his paint supplies, who can go up to the mountaintops and down into the valleys, and who also can go across time. What he sees is what he offers us. What his peculiar perspective gives him is a way to approach questions that are radically different from, from the assumptions of the people, of his fellow citizens in his time. And that was the resource that I was trying to find for him as a way to to rethink political questions at this particular moment in in American history, where politics is is used as a uh, almost as a term of of slander, and where our vocabulary for dealing with our shared issues more and more is a vocabulary of entrepreneurial neoliberal actors. Yeah, and I think that this question of non temporality that yeah. you sort of dive into and and make the case for. With with regard to Machiavelli, I think is really fascinating and important. I mean, I often thought about this when I when I read Nietzsche as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that Nietzsche is putting himself in in conversation across time, yes. um, and and so I was wondering specifically how Machiavelli is able to do this. And this is one of the things that you tease out a lot in the book, um, and also, you know. What he is trying to teach us, you know, 500 Mm -hmm. plus years later, um, with regard to his own conversations, either with us or with Livy um, or with the Bible. Uh (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite aspects of Machiavelli is his interesting use of biblical references. Yeah. Um, or or sort of eliding them. So can you speak a little bit about this sort of, um, approach, um, which I think is also part of your thesis around the encountering Machiavelli or reading Machiavelli now. To answer that question, I, I also want to draw back on a previous question you asked that I didn't completely answer. Sure. Um, you, you talked about the the uncanny friend, and I talked about the friend aspect, but not as much about the uncanny. Um, Althusser 
is the one who explicitly claims that the uncanny is a central part of what Machiavelli is is up to, and and he's using a Freudian definition of that term, where the uncanny is something that is disturbing and frightening because it's very close to us. Um, it's 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 ability to frighten us is because it's rooted in something that's very close to who we are and where we come from that we have repressed that we don't want to that we don't want to see so foundationally it's like traumatic early memory or like the the basement in the haunted house where the bad things happen right yes and and machiavelli in in altuzer's reading and i think he's right machiavelli represents this early moment in modern political thinking that that is an alternative path you know he he offers this particular anachronistic reading of, of ancient authorities, and then somehow political thought moves instead in the direction of, of the social contract. And although Machiavelli remains familiar to us, what he was doing is, is almost lost. Thinking about that foundational uncanny question brings us to questions about, about founding stories and claims of legitimacy, which Machiavelli is obsessed with. Um, you know, the, the idea that to really understand a republic or a religion or even a princedom, you have to look at its, at its founding, uh, the, the premises with which it began. And he almost never says this explicitly, but in most of the cases he's, he's drawing our attention to, even his source material says we're, we're, we're quite possibly just looking at myth. But he, he treats it as though it's, it's factual. And that, that makes us wrestle with the question of exactly how regimes establish their legitimacy and suddenly we can see that going on all around us i mean one of the examples i give in the in the book one of my chapters is on torture which is a policy the medici used including against machiavelli and a policy that we ourselves have used uh in the recent past and that president trump promised to reinstitute when he was campaigning for uh for the white house in in torture real trauma, people's pain is used to create narratives of legitimacy. The fact that they're tortured is represented as our need to find out and ferret out information that's, that's dangerous to the homeland. Uh, the things that they reveal in torture is used to reinforce the idea that the torturers are acting out of necessity, uh, that these things look horrible because um, the moment is so dire that people have been driven to do horrible things. And that becomes a kind of argument in favor of, of what the regime is doing. That's as close as I get in the book, I think, to looking at something that is, is uncanny in both the senses that Freud uses it. It's, it's terrifying. It's ghastly. And it's also rooted in foundational arguments about why a particular regime is legitimate. And, and that's, I mean, again, the sort of understanding of uncanny is a fascinating kind of exploration of Machiavelli, our friend. Right. Um, that you, you know, that you posit and that I've always often felt about him, I think, as you know, because of the way he writes. He writes like he's sitting right next to me. Um, or that's how I feel like when I'm reading it. Um, and it's so different in many ways than, you know, reading Locke um, or, or even, you know, reading platonic dialogues, which are, in fact, conversations. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like, yes, I'm a little bit inside of the conspiracy, as you say, um, when I read Machiavelli. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, you know, sort of how you dive into encountering Machiavelli in contemporary ways. 
Um, you talked a little bit about sort of thinking about torture and contemporary uses and, and sort of what Machiavelli is arguing. You also talk about this question of conspiracy. Um, can you talk a little bit more? You have mentioned it, but what is it about Machiavelli and conspiracies? As you say, he's very intrigued by them. Um, that is important in understanding Machiavelli for contemporary uh, democratic imaginations. Sure. This is a great example of this idea that Machiavelli represents a path that we didn't really take. The word conspiracy now for us is linked to these anti-political fantasies of, of seamless power. Um, since the, the horrible events in New Zealand last week, I've, I've, I've seen references and analyses of conspiracy theories all over the place. And they're all referring to the same phenomenon, to this right-wing fantasy that someone else has completely monopolized political and economic power and that that drives the necessity of, of mass murder and acts of terror. In Machiavelli, that's not what conspiracy looks like at all. For Machiavelli, conspiracy represents the fact that anybody can take action to radically transform our circumstances. The only real conditions are that you have to be willing to die because it's incredibly dangerous uh, and that there have to be other people involved. Conspiracy comes from, from Latin words meaning to, to breathe together. It's not a thing that one does in complete isolation, although the smaller the conspiracy, the better you are, you're off. So for, for Machiavelli, well, here, I can, I can talk exactly about the way he frames it at the beginning of, of his chapter on, on conspiracies. Again, he, he's, he's, he's pretending to, I think, warn princes about how dangerous conspiracy is. Uh, and then he tells us that in order that we, to make sure that princes can spot the signs of this danger, and in order to make sure that we, as his readers, are aware of how terribly dangerous conspiracy is, he's going to give us some examples. And then he gives us this long chapter where he's like, oh, this is terrible. See, this guy here, um, he was able to, to, to kill off this, this evil prince and reestablish freedom for his subjects. But that was probably just a one-off. I don't think you should really try that kind of thing. It's, it's incredibly dangerous to do, and you can definitely never do it um, when you're not from the city you're trying to conspire in. And if the prince is really well-placed, like this one guy, well, okay, that one guy actually was successful at doing that. And here's how he did it. But you shouldn't do that. And it just it, it goes on and on like that as he's basically telling us over and over again, our politics are, are plastic. We we hear stories about the deep foundations of regimes, and that can be more or less true. And that's a fundamental part of politics. But politics can be transformed. Politics can be changed. And if you have a, a vision to replace this particular moment with, you can really change the course of your political moment where, where we see impotence and homicidal rage, he sees a dangerous, aleatory, incredibly risky gamble that could transform our political moment. So then Donald Trump is actually following Machiavelli's advice. <laughs> He's following um, some kind of Machiavelli's advice. <laughs> Trying to radically change our politics. <laughs> I think. I don't know. <laughs> um, you also talk about um, this question of prophecy but the title you're, you, of the chapter itself is about Moses, mm -hmm. um, who I always find, you know, Machiavelli's references to Moses and the prince to be fascinating. And my students are always wrestling with that. Um, so, I mean, you, you sort of take us through, as you know, it's sort of conspiracies, prophecy, 
um, torture. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about this question of prophecy and Moses and the use of the Bible. Just like my conspiracy initially paper was prompted by a, a, a reference in, in one of Bonnie Honig's books, George Shulman's book, American Prophecy, really provided the spark for that chapter. Shulman is talking in that book about the way that prophetic language has been used in American politics. And again, at our moments, there's one narrative of, of prophecy, like there's one narrative of conspiracy that, that is very monolithic and that does not seem to lend itself well at all to a democratic politics. But Shulman reminds us that prophetic stories can be used in democratic ways and tells us we have to think about how to make that happen. And so as, as I began to think of this as a, as a book on Machiavelli, I thought that would be another profitable um, arena to look at. And what Machiavelli brings to his discussion of prophecy is a huge focus on political skill. You know, he, he, he looks at the career of Savonarola in his own, in his own Florence and how transformative Savonarola was for Florentine life and then how he lost everything. And he tells us that, that armed prophets always win and unarmed prophets always fail. But Savonarola was armed as long as he was popular. He had a, a political faction, the Fratesci, who, who helped him carry out whatever it was he wanted to do, and they were not pacifists. He lost his arms when he lost his ability to convincingly perform politically. And that brought to me a new emphasis on, on the weird way that Machiavelli talked about Moses. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, so we have these great founders we should emulate like Theseus and Cyrus and Moses, but don't think about Moses. Don't, don't deal with Moses. Moses was, was motivated by God. So he doesn't really count, but you know, guys like Cyrus and Romulus who could do things like, you know, part the Red Sea and, and there's manna coming from heaven, but don't think about Moses. And it, it made me wonder, like, why does he keep doing that? <laughs> why does he keep bringing up this guy and then telling us not to, not to look at him? And what, what Moses presents us with, and, and I can't read Hebrew. I used Robert Alter's fantastic um, uh, translation of the Pentateuch. What Moses provides us with is a prophet who is never really allowed to stop politically performing. Um, he doesn't want to do it. But he's forced into that position and he spends his entire time on stage, really, in the Bible, trying to convince the Israelites, trying to convince foreigners, including the Pharaoh, and at times trying to convince God um, that his particular vision for this community and his particular idea of what the law should look like can work. And he is successful because he is unflaggingly political. And, and that, I think brings a new understanding to us of both the challenges for Savonarola, who eventually decided that he could, really could speak with God and therefore that he didn't need to convince, uh, and with the politics of our own time, to think about the ways in which we've allowed prophetic speech to become anti-democratic and anti-political, uh, and to not really, to not really deal with the, the deep political and at times very democratic aspects of, of, biblical speech and prophetic speech in our politics. Again, uh, like the conspiracy, Machiavelli shows us how things that we tend to read in one particular way used to be read very, very differently. And that reading provides us with resources. I, I mean, I think that the analysis of Moses as, you know, sort of constantly political is again, sort of a fascinating 
understanding from Machiavelli's point of view, obviously, um, but also in terms of, you know, sort of understanding the entire Exodus story um, and, and what is being demonstrated by this political leader. Um, and I mean, I always love that chapter because I, I, I love talking to my students about, you know, what is Machiavelli saying about Moses here? <laughs> <laughs> he was getting whispered in his ear by God. Okay, so do we believe that Machiavelli thought that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, and if you look at the elements of the story, he writes about Moses the same way he writes about Cyrus and Romulus. And, you know, it's a... What, it, what Bill Murray says, a Cinderella story, a yeah. guy facing these enormous challenges who manages to come from behind. But he can't exactly say that Moses is like them because he's saying that their religious stories are inventions or fictions. And he won't quite say that about Moses. But he does make it clear that Moses is uh, is politically virtuoso, that that, that, that explains his, his success. And and the and the guy who goes unnamed in that chapter, of course. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I always it's like, okay, so who's missing here to my students as I take them through that chapter? <laughs> uh, and and your final section of the book is on exhortations, um, and yeah, Machiavelli has some famous exhortations, particularly the last chapter of the Prince, um, which is famously complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of asked Catherine Zuckert about this when I was talking to her about her book on Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love for you to talk a little bit about Machiavelli's exhortations, not only in the Prince but elsewhere and why these are important in terms of our, you know, sort of contemporary reading of him. Yes. <laughs> um, when I, when I deal with the Prince in my classes, um, I always do a day on the last two chapters of The Prince and, and try to look at their strange relationship because the book does end with a manifesto, with a straight up exhortation to the Medici family, but also I think to anybody with means who's reading that text to do something, to, to have virtue, to try to exercise control and intelligent agency over the political events of their lives. But he prefaces it with this bizarre chapter on, on fortune. Right. Where he says, first of all, that, you know, I think basically we probably have control over half of our actions in the world. And and then he tries metaphorically to make sense of that. Well, fortune is like a is like a river and it can flood. But, you know, that doesn't mean we can't take precautions against flooding. And Machiavelli famously was engaged in a project during the days of the Republic to try to set up dams on the Arno to give Florence power over Pisa. As Hannah Pitkin put it in her great book, um, Fortune is a Woman, for Machiavelli, river metaphors aren't about learning to submit to nature. They're about public political control over nature. But then he says, you know, and rivers, rivers just wait until you're unprepared and then they come in and flood you. And suddenly the river has acquired this weird agency. And then he, he puts that metaphor aside. And then he talks about changeability and fortune as like being sort of like Proteus and then fortune becomes a woman. And then because fortune is a woman, he tells us you have to, you have to batter her. And it's under that sort of that moment of this um, kind of impotent, fearful, enraged position that he begins his exhortation. And one thing I like to do in class is I'll, I, I'll show um, some scenes from Shakespeare's Henry V, that Henry V gives this great 
before the battle speech at the Battle of Agincourt. Of course. That, that rouses up his men and they're all ready to go fight. But before that, he has this long night where he's completely beset with doubt and miserable. But he's alone for that. And what Machiavelli has done is basically made mo- most of those moments, both of those moments, public. He he shows us fear and dread and doubt and rage and impotence. And then he says, "Okay, let's go do the job." And that leaves us in this very strange position about how to how to read that moment and under what conditions to undertake this this exhortation. He's really not giving us a uh, a, a Crispin's Day speech exhortation there, despite if you just look at the chapter, what it what it reads like. And I I tried to then close my book with some exhortations in a similar in a similar frame of mind, at least insofar as they're chastened, uh, not hopefully enraged and and um, and afraid. Um, but to think about these issues I discuss in the book, Machiavelli on conspiracy and on prophecy and on torture and exile. Uh, with an eye towards them as monumental challenges that we can read differently than we've been taught to read uh, and that we can try to approach um, from perspectives that can enable us to work together in a, in a political fashion to, to, to settle these problems. To, I mean, not to settle the problem, say, of, mass, of mass, um, a massive refugee crisis, but to settle the problems in ways that don't partake of neoliberal rationales or, or torture. And and so finally, um, this I mean again, this is a kind of really fascinating reading of our reading of Machiavelli, um, and so I'm I'm curious as to where it has led you. What is it that you are working on now after this kind of diving into, in a kind of unexpected way, thinking and rethinking about Machiavelli. Yeah, the Machiavelli book really took me by surprise. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, that's I, sort of what you've sounded like. It's like, wow, this is really fascinating. <laughs> I, I was going to write a paper, and the paper turned out to be really fun. And then the panel at the at the Western turned out to be really fun. And then I started getting really good feedback, and I was like, oh, what the hell? Let's do it. And now that it's done, I'm actually trying to go back to what I was working on before. <laughs> Is it not um, as much fun, I bet? <laughs> well, I'm writing about, at the moment, about William and Henry James, and they're both incredibly rich, and the overall project, I think, is exciting, but it's true. Sitting down to chat with Henry and William James is not the same as sitting down to chat with Machiavelli. Um, so what is the book about that the James going to be about? It's Actually, this is part of the, I think the reason why the Machiavelli book came easy is that I was already wrestling with questions about how we read political events and how our readings um, move us towards perceiving different possibilities. I'm talking about how the Jameses deal with the crises at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century with, despite the incredibly different fields in which they worked, with shared a shared language of haunting and um, and a kind of confrontation with what is alien. Um, Henry James, when he returns to the United States after decades and goes on tour and begins to write this travelogue, the American scene, goes to visit Ellis Island. And um, he's, he doesn't like it. <laughs> he doesn't like how the United States has changed. He doesn't like the new money millionaires or the skyscrapers or the, the sudden recent increase in immigration levels. He really doesn't like the fact that there's no plaque on the house he grew up in. Um, 
but he he characterizes Ellis Island as a haunted house, which struck me as a really bizarre analogy. Usually, xenophobic metaphors are like the ones that Machiavelli uses. It's a, it's either about foreign invasion or it's about floods. Ghosts introduce questions about about legitimacy. They introduce questions about who has prior claims on the home. They introduce questions about the ways in which the home is not what we think it is. They unsettle uh, the the people who they share their home with. And so for a, for a chapter that's basically kind of a cranky, xenophobic complaint, haunting seemed like a really weird image to me. And then maybe a year after that question occurred to me, I was reading William James to get ready for a class. And I, I saw this sort of similar maneuver to to attempt to deal with new challenges, for example, in William's case, um, imperialism, not by using what would seem like more obvious metaphors, but by questions of, of haunting and having to share space with, with what is alien. Um, William actually had a moment when he was in medical school uh, where he was in his study at home and he was writing and he'd done a residency in a mental hospital and he treated a young a kid there who died. And he said, suddenly he knew the kid was in the room with him and the kid was up on top of his bookshelf and he said he looked like a Peruvian mummy and William was frozen in, in terror. And he said afterwards, the thing that so frightened him was that as he looked at it, he thought that shape potentially am I. Ah. And it's, it, it's that idea that our, even in attempts to, to render the different as the alien or the disturbing, we find these strange resemblances and these questions about our own place and our own legitimacy. And, and that's what I'm trying to, to address in the James Brothers' later writings and also in our own political moment. I, I think that's really fascinating. Will you come back on the New Books Network and talk about it once you finish that book? I would love to. Thank you. Um, thank you for joining me today, Ron Schmidt, um, and for talking with me about reading politics with Machiavelli published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Can you let your, the listeners know where one might be able to find a copy of your book? I'm sure in the regular places, but perhaps there's a brick-and-mortar store you want to give a shout-out to? Uh, there are the regular places. Um, the, so far, the only brick-and-mortar store in my area I know that, that has some copies is the bookstore at my university. <laughs> um, well, we'll send people to Oxford University Press's website then to pick up a copy of Reading Politics with Machiavelli. That would be terrific. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me.